Welcome to the Endurance Horse Podcast, where endurance riders from all across the globe gather, sharing their stories, goals, and progress as they train for and compete in endurance events at every level. So kick off your shoes, pull up a chair, and listen as we gather around the virtual campfire and listen to friends from across the world. Welcome to episode 26 of Endurance Horse Podcast, where we will hear from not only the winner of Tevis 2019, though also from volunteers, crew, and more riders. Did you know that the Tevis Cup, also known as the Western States Trail Ride, has been held every year since 1955? This makes Tevis the most established modern-day endurance ride in the world and possibly the universe. Tevis has been the inspiration for other such rides as the great Bighorn 100 and the Tom Quilty Gold Cup. It is amazing to me how one group of riders with an idea can establish something so inspirational that it has stood the test of time for several decades. The Tevis has inspired others to build on what was started by Wendell Roby and his friends. Only roughly half 54% of the people who tow the line to begin Tevis will see the completion of it. The statistics at teviscup.org show that from 1955 until 2017, 10,365 riders have started Tevis and only 5,615 had finished. Those statistics were through 2017. To finish is to win. I am equally inspired by those of you who did not finish as I am by those who did because it takes the same amount of courage to even attempt to finish and ride the Tevis. No one truly knows what may happen during a ride or how your day will go. We are grateful to those of you who send in audio whether you found your buckle at the end of the ride or not this time. Thank you for including the listeners of Endurance Horse Podcast in your journey. Now, of course, there was one horse and rider team who did cross the finish line first, and that was the young and talented Miss Sonoma Blakely of Oregon. Sonoma crossed the finish line at 9.27 p.m., just ahead of a three-time winner of the Tevis Cup. It is a testament to this 18-year-old young lady that her horse, R.A. Eris Bay, a.k.a. Goober, pulsed down quickly and vetted out sound at the end of arguably the world's toughest one-day, 100-mile endurance ride. Sonoma has a proud heritage of endurance riding. Sonoma's mother has six Tevis buckles. Sonoma's father has five Tevis buckles. And Sonoma's brother won the Hagen Cup in 2014 at the ripe old age of 15 years old. As if that is not an interesting enough tale for you, Sonoma's 2019 Tevis Cup champion Goober was found as a two-year-old. On Craigslist, he was listed as a free horse. Goober is her dad's horse and apparently earned the name Goober by his silly antics, such as leading other horses around. Sonoma has said that she has the greatest parents in the world and the greatest horse. And who could argue with that? Let's hear a brief recount of the Tevis 2019 journey from Sonoma herself. Without further ado, I bring to you episode 26 of Endurance Horse Podcast. Enjoy. 
Hi there, Sonoma Blakely here from Terrebon, Oregon, um, the winner of the 2019 Tevis Cup. Um, so for me, I guess endurance started when um, has always been part of my life. You know, I started endurance when I was very young. I've always grown up around horses. It's just always been a part of my life, leaving school early to condition horses, taking long weekends from school to go to races, you know, riding in the snow and cold part of the winter to get ready for the first races in the season, and always training hottest part of the day for races like Tevis. Um, honestly, I just, I can't remember a part, a time in my life where I didn't ride or have horses. It's just always been part of my life. Um, I did my first endurance race when I was six. I got hooked after that. Just the uniqueness of every individual horse, I think made the sport extremely addicting. The challenge to continue improving, to improve your own condition as well as the horses, see what every individual horse is capable of pushing them to improve. Yeah, and then Tevis started, I guess, in my family in 2007 when my parents dated their first Tevis. And I was six at the time. It was an amazing experience. I was got kind of sick during it, so I can't remember a whole lot of it, but I just remember being an incredible experience and always wanting to do it. I was like, when I'm 12, I'm going to take my horse and we're going to do Tevis. In um, my first 50-mile race, I got flown between my mare's ears as we were going down a steep downhill, and she decided she wanted to just slam on her brakes because there was a green clump of grass. So, you know, got, had dealt with several challenges in my early years of endurance, just being young and inexperienced. And I guess I just kept getting up and going through it. So yeah, in 2012, I, or 2013, when I was 12, I did my first Tevis. It was an, an amazing experience. Definitely had never experienced anything quite like that. And so, I don't know, I've always wanted to do Tevis. My goal was to top 10 Tevis, eventually win Tevis. But I was not a huge fan of the trail. The steep drop-offs and whatnot made it a little intimidating for me. So I really needed a solid horse. I tried it a few times and got pulled. And so I guess this year, 2019, was really a great year because I had my horse, Goober, who we got as a two-year-old for free on Craigslist. He wasn't a rescue horse, but um, he had o ODC or OCD in his stifles. And so his owners just wanted to give him away because they were moving across the country and they weren't sure if he would ever make a sport horse if he would grow into his stifles or not and so we decided we'd just give him a chance let him grow up a few years he was he'd grown really fast he was super tall as a two-year-old he's 16 hands now um so we got him as a two-year-old kind of let him grow up he was quite the character definitely a goober he would rip horse blankets open gates untie everybody when they were standing on the fence and tie himself um, he would play with the buckets, throwing tubs, definitely a character. He bit the car. He tried a lot of things, a lot of plants he wasn't supposed to, all our flowers. Um, definitely a goober, definitely a character. Um, an awesome horse, though. We definitely have a really strong bond. Rode him on quite a few races, did a few hundreds on him. Really an awesome awesome horse and really love him 
real character. Um, so this year I was just really happy when my dad offered for me to ride him on Tevis. He was kind of been a family horse, but the last couple years my dad's really been riding him, got third with him on Tevis last year. And so I felt bad taking my dad's horse. I was kind of like, oh, I don't know if I want to take your horse. And I'm not sure. I enjoy crewing at Tevis. I'm like, I don't have to ride. But then my dad, he insisted I take Uber, so I did. And I don't know. From the first, it was a couple weeks before Tevis that I decided I was going to ride him. And so I started training him. And I was just like, wow, this horse, he's really strong and whatnot. So I feel like we could have a really fair chance at winning, especially since he got third last year. But you never know how the race is gonna unfold. Yeah, I guess at Forest Hill was when I really decided that I should continue to push like I'm gonna win. Up till then, I was a little bit nervous. My riding, my brother who I was riding with, he decided to pull back at Deadwood at 55 miles. And so I was very apprehensive riding Tevis by myself. It was my first year, not as a junior on Tevis. So everything was a little new. I had I never ran so competitively at Tevis, so definitely very apprehensive. Came into Forest Hill, and Goober, he looked awesome. The vet said he looked great. He had a great CRI. And my mom looked at him and was just like, Sonoma, you know, you can really push him. He looks awesome, and you don't have to worry about anything. He's He's a good horse. You can push him. And so... When we came into Forest Hill or Francisco's, 85 miles in, um, a big group of horses came in right behind us, Reynolds and Gwen Hall and Suzanne, and a big group of horses came in. I was riding with Haley, and then Karen Donnelly was probably about five minutes out ahead of us, and so it was a big group of horses. It was kind of like, well, I'm just going to have to stay with these guys. We'll see what happens. After the river crossing... I felt like Goober still had a lot of go left in him. And Reynolds, Heather, and Jeremy, they decided to leave the group that we were riding with and push their horses after. And so we we came into Lower Quarry. I came in with the Reynolds in first, second, and third place. Um, I vetted Goober right through. Wanted to make sure we weren't going to get pulled at Lower Quarry give me some peace of mind to let him eat, that he wasn't gonna, wasn't lame or anything. And so we vetted through and then I decided, you know, if I wanna win Tevis, I'm gonna have to make my move now. So we left two minutes ahead of Jeremy out of Lower Quarry. Um, I put Goober into a pretty fast gallop and we left. It was completely dark. It was definitely a lot of trust towards Goober. He's a really awesome horse and so just, galloping out six miles to the finish. Jeremy caught us probably about four miles from the finish. And after that, it was just like a full out horse race. He passed me a couple times towards the end. I passed him a few times. It came down to like a neck and neck sprint for the finish. And um, Goober just seemed to have a little bit more left at the end. And we beat Jeremy's horse by probably about a horse length which was a pretty insane race. I just couldn't believe it. So we went down to the stadium, vetted through, got our completion. It was an amazing experience to have won Tevis, especially to have a horse that looks 
looked so good afterwards. I was really proud of how Goober had done. I felt like if I wouldn't have changed anything during that race. He's a really cool horse. Definitely had the support of my family. And yeah, it was it was crazy. Definitely. Hi. My name is Angie Mickelson. I'm a North Dakota endurance rider. Wanted to share my 2019 Tevis adventure story with you all. I split it up into a couple parts. So we'll start with part one, which I am going to call the backstory. In March at the AERC convention, I purchased $50 worth of raffle tickets. And for some unknown reason, I threw one ticket into the Tevis bucket. Well, lo and behold, I won the darn entry. So this began our journey to Tevis. They instantly put it on Facebook, and my good buddy Hannah Johnson, who was flying in and was on her layover, saw it, and she texted me and said, Now what? In all caps. For the last eight to nine years, we plan and travel together to most of the rides, and this was not in our plans. We had traveled together twice before to Tevis, once in 2014 when um, I only made it to Robinson Flat with my horse. Um, he wasn't eating, he didn't um, look right, he had been just a complete lunatic for the first 36 miles and um, I went ahead and pulled him and called it a day for him. Um, again, in 2016, we loaded up and made the trek across the country to Tevis and my mare stuck her rear leg over the tie line rope and rope burned herself really, really bad between her legs. And she wasn't even able to start. So at the time of winning the Tevis entry, I was not very confident that I was even going to be able to go. I had a horse that I felt was possibly ready for 100, but I didn't really feel like he was going to be ready for Tevis. I had a lot of personal things coming up this year. My husband and I were building a new house. I had a mare in full, so um, leasing a horse was kind of an option, but I kind of would need to win the lottery to do that. Not to mention that I'm not really fond of taking off into Tevis on a strange horse and not really knowing the owner very well to know what was, you know, expected of me. So the idea of Tevis was in the back of my mind, but I never really pursued much of a plan to make it happen. Um, then, while sitting around the kitchen table with Hannah one night, having a few drinks, of course, <laughs> um, she out of the blue says, I think you should take to t Archie to Tevis. I'll crew for you. Now, if you know Hannah, that's a huge offer because she's not super fond of crewing. She's a rider through and through. And so I blew it off and giggled and said, yeah, right. But Hannah was serious. She kept on about it. And so I started thinking... And a few days later, I sent her a text and said, Are you serious about Tevis? I just can't stop thinking about it since you mentioned it. She sent me back. She's like, Yep, if he gets through Fort House 100, then it's definitely a thing. You need to get your buckle. So Hannah was on a mission to get me my buckle, which is amazing. I don't know where there's a better friend than that who would give up her only horse she could probably you know, go breeze through Tevis on for me or for a friend anyways. So 
There was a rider coming from Australia to ride Archie in the 100 at Fort Howes, which would be his first 100. So he was, you know, iffy at first. Um, Hannah's going to do a, a ride swap for Quilty. And so the gal from Australia came, and I was at home. I didn't get to go to Fort Howes, so I was at home holding my breath until I heard from her that he'd actually finished and done really well. He's a phenomenal athlete. He just has so much natural talent, but he can sometimes be difficult. Um, One, just he's kind of difficult to be around in general, but he can also um, be difficult to get to eat and drink. Um, The last end of last season and beginning of this season, um, he has been really good, kind of changed up a bunch of things, and he's gotten so much better. And so I was I was feeling all right about that part. And after Fort House was over and he had that 100 under his belt, our master plan began. Somewhere in the midst of this master plan, Hannah decided that her Morab should go. <laughs> um, remember that rider thing I told you about? Um, she definitely wanted to ride it. It's always been kind of our thing we wanted to do together. So um, it, I was super excited that she was willing to take him. Um, she knew it was a chance because, one, it would be his first hundred. But he's just so natural and takes such good care of himself. He eats and drinks all the time. He likes to move forward. You don't have to pedal him. Um, he's a strong horse, but not... Um, super difficult to rate and he's really easy to be around so we would ride this thing together was the plan fun fact i'd never ridden archie i'd been around him quite a bit Um, both hannah rode him with me in several rides and other people had ridden him with me Um, i'd been traveled with him and so on and so forth but i'd never gotten on the horse so we decided it'd probably be a pretty good idea that I, I actually rode him. Um, coming up was the Bighorn 50, so we went ahead and took him to the Bighorn 50. And the morning of the Bighorn was the first time I ever got on him. He had been ridden in a podium saddle before, so I went ahead and packed my podium up, put that up on him, and jumped up on. And I felt like my stirrups were just so long, so I got off and put them up a notch which I think was definitely to my detriment uh, for the day. Um, he's very lofty. He has a huge trot. Like just when you think that he is at the, the peak of his trot, he will like go down about two inches and take off like another five miles an hour in a trot. And it just tossed me around like a fish out of water. By the end of the 50 there, I was really struggling. I felt really bad. Um, I was sore. I was just super tired. I didn't really feel confident at that point. Um, That said, he was amazing. Like he ate so well. He drank really good. Um, He was forward at the finish, like pulling my arms off still. He definitely um, looked like he could have kept going at the end. So I feel very confident about him, but not so confident about my ability to ride him appropriately for Tevis. Hannah and I talked a bunch about it and um, decided that I'd come down and do a couple more training rides on him and try to switch to my free form and see if I could, you know, have a little bit more contact, sit a little lower. The podium puts you up so high. I just felt like it was throwing me out of it. The difference was 
literally night and day. Like, I mean, it was crazy. I felt so good in the free form on him. We went ahead and planned to go to the Antelope Butte 25. There's a lot of elevation change there and it would give me just a little bit more seat time on him in a race sense so that we could just kind of bond a little bit more before before Tevis. It was definitely a boost in my confidence. So it was very it was a very good plan. It worked out well. Due to our work schedules and I actually had to go to Montana the weekend before Tevis for a family funeral. Uh, we didn't plan to leave until Tuesday morning. Uh, Hannah lives in Belfouche, South Dakota, so I went on down to Belfouche and we left on Tuesday morning, headed to Rock Springs, Wyoming. Um, we'd planned to stay the night there at the fairgrounds and then on to Fernley, Nevada, and then a two-hour drive from there to Roby Park on Thursday morning. Uh, traveling was uneventful. The horses did great. They traveled well. We put in about 10-hour days, but we did stop once each day and unloaded, um, gave the horse mash, water, just let him rest a little bit, walked him around. We did go ahead and cover the horses with GastroGuard in the mornings um, before loading, and then on their mash stop, we went ahead and put some Redmond salt and Daily Gold in their mashes. So after more than 1,300 miles of driving, we arrived at Roby Park about 12.30 on Thursday afternoon. We found our special parking spot where we had parked the last two years. It's kind of a bigger open area that it's easy for me to get in and out. Uh, my trailer isn't very small, so... Um, it fits well in there and I don't have to stress too much about backing in and making all these fancy moves and ramming into a tree or something. You can't really drive around Roby Park looking for a parking place, so I think we're all kind of creatures of habit there. We just go to the place where we're comfortable and park. You don't want to be driving around in there and get stuck and not be able to get out or or hurt your trailer or whatever. So, okay, well that is the end of part one, the start to the whole adventure. Um, please find my part two and listen on. Thank you. Hi, my name is Gwen Hall. I'm a writer from Colorado and I was very fortunate to be able to complete the 2019 Tevis on my wonderful horse, size doesn't matter. This was his third Tevis finish and his third top 10. And I uh, couldn't be more amazed by this horse and how fantastic he really is. As far as um, our weather, um, we're fortunate enough to get our altitude training in here. We live at 8,500 feet, but the downside is we don't get a lot of heat. So we definitely struggled a little bit in the heat of the canyons. Um, we just didn't get a lot of uh, warm weather here in Colorado this year. The trade-off was we got a lot of rain and no forest fires, so I consider that a, a pretty good trade. My horse size doesn't matter as a purebred Arabian. I bought him off the racetrack as a four-year-old, and I bought him back in 2010. He was the first endurance horse that I purchased, and by far the best purchase I have ever made as far as a horse goes so far in my entire life. Um, as far as his personality, he's actually a pretty chill dude. Um, pretty much always cool as a cucumber, except the start of the race. He is all business and uh, he wants to go. He can uh, sometimes be uh, pretty headstrong and forward, but usually we come to an agreement um, one way or the other at some point on who gets to, to set the pace. 
I actually started in endurance with his purchase. Um, as far as actual endurance background, I was an ultra marathoner for um, about 10 years prior to purchasing him. And that's actually how I heard about endurance. Um, of course, the Western States Trail 100 is a, an icon run in endurance running in this country. And researching that run discovered its origins um, in the roots of Tevis. And um, certainly that was became a goal for me uh, once I started in endurance. And I've been uh, very pleased that although I haven't been able to run the Western States 100, I've still been able to go on the trail and at least do some jogging on it with my horse, even if I didn't qualify for the 100. Our goals um, this year, he has um, fulfilled amazingly. Um, certainly, we were, we were going to try and go for the win at Tevis, but he did start to overheat a bit in the canyons, and that caused a, a change in plan. So uh, we just went for the finish, and I was thrilled with how he did. If he recovers well from this, um, hopefully we'll go for the national championship um, in Ridgecrest, California this year. And then next year, uh, with God willing and everything going great, go back for another crack at Tevis. Um, really do enjoy that ride. It's an amazing, amazing ride, and the volunteers really make that ride um, very special. Um, it's already a, a tough and special ride as it is, but the people really make you uh, feel like you're a you're queen of the world when you come into those aid stations and they're right there with plates of food and they're to help you hold your horse and cool them down and and i just can't speak highly enough about it hello endurance friends this is carrie tooley from temecula california and i finished the tevis this year and wanted to share my story wow where do I begin? How about with I finished with minutes to spare? I started in pin one and Magnum was doing great at Red Star, 28 miles. My goal this year was to get farther than last year, 36 miles, which is at Robinson's Flat. We were a couple miles out at a water stop that was just being filled. Came to it with two riders on mules. Frank and Shane. Magnum was still drinking when they left, so I rode by myself, trotting along great at around seven miles an hour, just two miles to get to Robinson's, and Magnum, I believe, stepped on a rock and fell to his knees. Me going over his head, but wait, he gets up with me on his head. I'm hanging on his neck, trying to scoot myself back into the saddle. Riders behind me are amazed, but keep on going. I realize I've lost my shoe in the fall and go back to find it. I come into Robinson's vet check and thought we wouldn't vet through, but he's scraped up, but okay to go. Started riding with my friend Jill. Think it was after Dusty Corners, there was a rider whose horse had its hoof stuck in a cattle guard. There were riders trying to free the horse's hoof, but we stayed so not to make the horse anxious by us leaving. No one had cell service, so a gentleman rode back to get a vet. The horse did manage to free itself, but it was awful to watch. Jill and I were quite shaken up. We rode through the canyons together, leading our horses down and cooling them off in the river. 
then went across Swinging Bridge. First time for me, bridge burnt in a fire in 2013. Made it to Forest Hill, Bath Road, 68 miles, where the whole street is lined with people like a parade cheering you on. Magnum thought he was such a stud, single footing through the crowd, left Forest Hill in the dark, but hitched up with a great group, including Melissa Formica, who was leading with a wonderful red light that lit up the trail. I was a few horses behind her on the Caltu loop when she and her horse went over the side. She came back up, but her horse was still down there. She went down after her and got her back up, but when she came up, she ran off by herself. Later, we came across Kathy Bartuski, who had been hit by the loose horse, and her saddle was on the side of the, her horse. People helped her fix the saddle. Needless to say, it took forever to get to the Cal 2 water stop. I was feeling sick from night riding. I had taken Dramamine, wore C-bands on my wrists, chewed ginger, chewed gum, and had peppermints, all while going to Cal 2. When riders were able to go faster to Francisco's, I chose to go with the slower ones because I wasn't seeing the trail very well. Someone later told me it might be more than motion sickness. I may have had low blood sugar. Even though I didn't feel well, crossing the American River under the full moon was awesome. The river was flowing swiftly and Magnum drank all the way across it. Got into Lower Quarry Vet Check and Magnum had to be rechecked, but was good to go. I think it was a hind, but the vet said it looked okay. Since I had put my watch on the charger at Forest Hill in my trailer and left it, I didn't know what time it was, and because there were so many horses on the trail, I never thought we were close to cut off. Magnum had a lot of gas in the tank, but every time I rode in front, I couldn't see well. I think a lot of the glow sticks had burned out by that time. So I didn't feel comfortable and asked others to lead. Made it to the finish with lots of horses, some behind me. So I thought everything was fine. I got off and walked him to McCain Stadium with my crew, who had stayed up and waited for me. They were so excited I had made it and expected me to also B. But Magnum was a little too forward and had been pulling on me all day. It was hard at that time to be happy with him. We get to the stadium and they tell me to get back on and do my victory lap. I'm thinking they're crazy. Taking him into the arena by himself with lots of banners and sensory. I tell myself, Carrie, you did the Rose Parade and Tevis. You can do a victory lap. The vets comment on how well Magnum looks and takes our picture. I'm thinking he's busy with other horses. Why is he taking our picture? Come to find out, we were the second to the last horse and I had no clue. Many thanks to my crew, Sandy Harris, Gail Pena, 
and Kelly Moana. I think I should consider myself very lucky. First, getting added to pin one. Second, not coming off and losing Magnum in his fall. And third, not knowing that we were so close to not finishing. And we did. Oh, and on the way home, I had a horse trailer blow out a tire on the grapevine, made it off Interstate 5, and found two gentlemen to help me change out the tire and get us back on our way. If you would have told me I'd be in the saddle at 4.30 a.m. Saturday and finish at 5 a.m. Sunday, I'd think you were crazy. This was attempt number three for me. I was pulled at the finish line in 2014 with a different horse and pulled at Robinson last year with when Magnum's pulse hung at 64. Yesterday, my local riding group threw me a party for my Tavis completion, and they all pitched in to buy me a buckle, which I hadn't purchased because I didn't think we'd finish. Amazing friends I have. All I can say is ride Tevis. It's something you'll never forget. Hey, this is Jen McCabe, and I was lucky enough to crew for a group of six, gulp, six riders and horses at Tevis 2019. It was definitely experience. Um, I've crewed before for my original endurance mentor, Jody Wyatt, and her Bay Arabian mare uh, that was a former racetrack horse, uh, Mira Bay. And they were our first training partners that got my Mustang, Odin, and I into endurance um, when we started trail riding with friends in the Bay Area in California. And my horse liked to go longer. Someone introduced me to Jody. Jody had us ride with her and kind of taught us the ropes along the way. So during our first year, I think we'd done one limited distance ride. Jody took her mare to the Tevis Education Ride, which happens every other year. And uh, she did so well on the Ed Ride, coming in first both days. I was actually volunteering uh, for vet checks there. So I was doing pulse and uh, respiration checks. We call them P&Rs. Uh, that Jody ended up going to Tevis. We were able to assemble a slapdash crew. This was in 2017. We were lucky enough to have Nick Warhol head crew for us and uh, myself and Abbas Lukenbach. Um, so we had a good crew of, of three plus Jody's husband and daughter. And we learned a lot on that uh, crewing occasion. And so uh, in 2018, I was supposed to crew, but I had some third degree sunburns on my legs. So I ended up not being able to crew for friends, which was a bummer. And then in 2019, I put up a post on Facebook because I now have enough endurance friends that somebody would see it, I figured. And I got a response from a, a friend that I've ridden with a little bit at some XP series rides, Chelsea Arnold. And Chelsea also has a Mustang, so small world. Um, and Chelsea said, hey, you know, Dr. Jay Marrow, who's the head vet for the AERC, myself and a bunch of others are going to do a, a group crew at Tevis. So there were two groups of three riders and three horses with three horses sort of going out fast with their riders, you know, wanting to finish well and or attempting to race it. And then three riders going out slow back of the pack. So with the exception of Chelsea, I was completely new to the group, uh, which was interesting. And uh, I ended up heading down to Roby Park 
uh, at night after work on Thursday, going the back way, which I don't recommend. Don't go the back way. Don't follow your GPS. Follow the instructions that are on the the Tevis website uh, in the middle of the night. And I ended up, uh, of all the crazy things, parking literally right next to, to Jay and her girls and right across from Chelsea and where those folks were camped. I don't know how I got that lucky. Um, sort of a family motto, like better lucky than good, but it definitely held true in this instance. So I woke up the next morning, went for a long walk, like checked in, you know, bought some things <laughs> like you do at Tevis, um, if you're crewing, especially, and, uh, a little plug for the Wild West Endurance booth, Alicia Camberg's stuff is amazing. And then, um, ended up like wandering back to my truck. You know, I slept in my truck that night and Chelsea was like, Hey, where, where, where are you camped? And I was like, right there. Um, and so it was interesting. The key logistics uh, for me that are, are with crewing were I learned the first time, bring your own stuff, like bring exactly what you need to be self-sufficient, because what you're going to do is try not to worry about yourself. So you need to have a good like car camping or truck camping routine set up so that you can provide the utmost support to your riders and horses, because that is your job. You know, it's not about you being comfortable really, like you have to be safe, but it's all about being able to really productively be of service to your riders and your, your horse, their horses, that that absolutely comes first. So for me, it's setting up my, just like I do for endurance now, it's setting up my sleeping bag and blanket nest in the backseat of my Ford F-150. And I have all my clothes, I have handy wipes and stuff to take baths, I now just pack riding clothes just in case, you never know, um, and I end up wearing those pretty much all day. And in the back of my truck, I pack some extra things like a little extra hay bag, uh, a crew bag that I pack, uh, just like I would pack it for myself. And then a crew backpack, again, just like I would pack it for myself, even though we've only done 50 mile distances. And that crew backpack ended up being magical all day long at Tevis this year, but I'll tell you about that later. So uh, the logistics for me were, you know, one night to throw everything in the truck, uh, doing a budget. I always do a budget now. Um, so I calculated gas, you know, the timing. For me, it took about 10 and a half hours to drive my truck at a relatively reasonable pace from southwestern Idaho, where we live in Almo, all the way down to Roby Park. Uh, so I, I knew that I was going to do the drive in, in one spurt on the way down to Tevis, but I knew that I would probably be so tired on the way back that I would have to stop and get a hotel, but I wasn't sure how far I would make it. So I had some hotels saved using the Hotel Tonight app. So I was kind of, I was ready. The other plan was I knew this, that this year, uh, I knew where the showers were um, at the Tevis Fairgrounds. So I knew, you know, where I would be able to take a shower and when. I knew I could make it two days, which when I started riding endurance, that was unheard of for me. Like I could not go a day without taking a shower, but now I knew I could, I could go unshowered for two or three days. So I was ready to basically truck camp just like I would at an endurance ride, except without my trailer and without my horse. Um, that ended up being really, really useful. I think the one thing that I didn't bring enough of probably was human drinking water. Um, I usually fill a bunch of blue, like seven gallon containers from REI and put them in the back of my truck. And because I wasn't bringing the horse, I forgot that. So I definitely ran short on water. Um, I would say if I'm giving tips to other crew folks, you know, the first one is have a lot of power banks charged up, ready to go. Um, keep them in a fanny pack or a water pack or a saddlebag for you. Um, and have a lot of like, if you, you use lip gloss, have a ton of those sunscreen and bug spray, uh, per, per, portable personal toilets, <laughs> which are just two little glad Ziploc baggies 
the, um, the smaller size. I think it's the pint size. And inside of one, you tuck a little uh, travel pack of Kleenex or tissues, and you put another Glad Ziploc baggie inside that bag that you can put your dirty toilet tissue in. Um, yeah, so that was basically it. Sunscreen, bug spray, lots more water. Um, and it was an easy choice when Chelsea asked me to crew at Tevis. It's like, absolutely. Um, so tips for others who want to crew Tevis. Oh boy, make sure one, you're okay with, you're, you're physically prepared. Um, so make sure that like you're reasonably fit. You're going to walk. I don't think I know a crew person who's walked less than like seven or eight miles in that period. And you might do a half marathon. So you might walk 12 to 15 miles um, in a 24 hour period, or maybe even more, especially if you're crewing for multiple people and you go to many of the stops. If you have like a front runner and you're trying to meet them at like a chicken hawk, et cetera. So I would say, you know, make sure you're physically fit. Make sure that you've tested your clothing. Um, make sure that you're not going to get yourself into trouble physically or, you know, emotionally so that you can be of that support to your riders and their horses. Um, so make sure you're taken care of. Make sure you're ready to go. Uh, it is physical, extremely physically demanding. It's, it can be extremely stressful, especially if you have a rider who gets anxious or nervous. Um, luckily, kind of in our group, uh, we had a bunch of riders who, as the ride went on, especially after we got them at Forest Hill, they just got calmer. You know, everybody in our group, except for two people, had ridden the Tevis before. And so they knew what to expect. They knew how to settle in. They knew what they wanted from their crew. Uh, and that made our job kind of easy. Um, I would say it's important to kind of know yourself. And ideally, you know the personalities of your riders and the personalities of the other people in the crew. Because if you don't mesh, that can be really miserable. And I would say the advice I have is if you feel yourself not meshing with someone, just do the best you can. Like, keep your opinions to yourself. This, this is not about you. It's not about crew dynamics, actually. The crew dynamics should be almost invisible. Again, you're just there for your riders and their horses. So that would be my advice. Like, once you get there... Do what your head crew person says. Always do what your rider says. Even if that conflicts with your head crew person, another crew person, what the rider said two minutes before. You know, it's just all about taking care of them. Um, I think the other big, big tip I would have is don't be afraid to make suggestions um, about tack fit, right? If you see something that a rider may have forgotten or another crew person may have overlooked, uh, a, a snaffle bit or head stall that's too tight, you know, a hackamore that's too low or too loose, uh, girth straps that are way too loose or way too tight, um, you know, make, uh, you know, saddlebag, bumping the horse's backs, the horse is getting back sore. Use your expertise to the service of your, your rider and their horse, but don't, remember, it's not under your control. You, you can suggest changes, but always ask permission. Absolutely do not change anything without asking your rider. Um, I think a, other big tips I have for people that want to crew Tevis are, you know, have a short list. It's kind of like you want to get invited to crew Tevis um, rather than trying to insert yourself into a crew because the, if you're referred, it's coming from somebody who sort of knows you and knows your experience level, your energy level, et cetera, and is going to try to have a good fit for you. And I think that's really important because your first time crewing can be an amazing life-changing experience or can be GD terrible. Um, you know, just like your first endurance ride. So the people that you're with, you know, the horses that you're around sort of make or break that. 
Um, if, if in doubt, try to find the most experienced rider that you can and crew for them because you will learn oh, so much. It's, it's, like a, it's like a crash course in a graduate education in endurance because the riders that are doing it, you know, even if they're first timers or leasing horses, you just learn so much from, from soaking things in in that environment. Um, so to, to go back through tips, one, have a Magic Crew backpack. If anybody wants it, um, you know, I'm Jen S. McCabe on Facebook and my email is jennifersmccabe at gmail.com. And I'm happy to email you like my, my packing lists and my crew sheets and that sort of stuff as Google Docs. Um, the second is make sure you have the supplies that are going to keep you safe so that you can operate effectively for your crew. Um, you know, the third is make sure that you're physically fit and ready to crew. Um, you know, again, can you, can you walk 15 miles? You know, can you handle the heat? Um, you know, can you handle not eating for long periods of time? Uh, can you pull an all-nighter? Like if you've never pulled an all-nighter, oh, I will, I would say be honest with that. Um, because a lot of the most important job of crew actually starts after the riders go to sleep, you know, by like six or 7am in the morning, um, or 5am in the morning or, or earlier if they're finishing fast or they're, t- they're front runners. But you, you literally start, you know, the Friday of check-in, you start crewing, um, for helping with vet checks, helping get the horses and riders ready, helping make sure all final preparations are done, packing the trucks. Um, ask someone about the two crew system, breaking your crew into two uh, groups, which will allow the rider to have crew at all of the crew checkpoints. In some instances, if you just have a crew at Roby Park or wherever the start is, and you're running faster than expected, they may not make it into Forest Hill in time. Um, and the reason is because Forest Hill is a single lane road with a timed entry and you have three minutes to have your driver run the crew and the supplies up and drop you off and turn around and go park and then walk up. And so, um, the, and, and you can't leave Roby Park until after 5.30 a.m. The drive is about an hour and a half to two hours and then you sit in a line for an hour and a half to two hours and your riders are going to leave you know, by, I don't know, at the latest 5.15 if they're in virtual pen three. And then they're going to start, the front runners are going to start coming into uh, Forest Hill, um, or excuse me, at Robinson Flat, GS Robinson Flat, the BLM campground, um, which is the first major crew check at about, I think it's 36 miles. You may not get in and get set up in time to effectively crew for your rider if you don't break it into two groups. So the two crew system is you have one crew remain behind with you at the start at Roby Park and they see you off and then they get in your truck and trailer and they drive your truck and trailer forward using the vehicle pass and the rider's registration kit binder uh, to Forest Hill and they park at Forest Hill. Then they can either stay at Forest Hill um, and set up camp or they can move forward to Robinson Flat to join the rest of the crew. Um, if they have another vehicle uh, or if they want to catch a ride with somebody, which is ideal. Or, they, again, just keep them camped at Forest Hill because um, Forest Hill gets crazy. So getting there early and getting a good spot is actually really important. And then the second crew camps somewhere out. Um, usually people will stay in Auburn, right, or close to Auburn, the fairgrounds, which is like the finish. You know, you can camp there really cheaply. Um, or you can stay at a hotel or car camp along the way. Um but that crew goes directly to Robinson Flat. So they should leave at about 4.30 in the morning. They can take any vehicle as long as it fits their crewing supplies. And then they get in the line. And then if you leave at 4.30 from Auburn, you're going to be in the first or second group of people that are let into Robinson Flat. Um, and you'll have plenty of time to set up and, you know, check things out and get ready. Um, then after Robinson Flat, you know, one 
one crew takes the stuff back to Forest Hill, like drops back to Forest Hill. If you had both crews there, um, the second crew or people can break off and they can go catch the rider at Chicken Hawk. And I forget what's the one that starts with an M before Chicken Hawk. Uh, anyway, they can, they can get a, a mash and some food and a little bit of rider support in at Chicken Hawk uh, and then jump forward to Forest Hill. And then Forest Hill is the big crew checkpoint where lots of people pull a rider option because you're riding out into the night, um, into the, the second half of the race, and you're, you have the American River crossing. And then after that, the last big check is, is literally Auburn at the fairgrounds where the finish line is. So the three major crew points are Robinson Flat in the morning, Forest Hill in the afternoon through the evening, and then Auburn you know, into the night hours, early morning. Um, you know, most, the vast majority of Tevis finishers, like I think something crazy, like 75% or something will come in between like 3.30 and the cutoff time, which is 5 or 5.15 a.m. So crew, you're going to be up, you know, from Friday, basically you'll get a little sleep Friday night. Um, and then you'll be up all day Saturday, all day Saturday night, and then your riders will come in and then your horse needs, horses need care. And so guess what? You're camped on a cot with the horses making sure that they get what they need, legs wrapped, walked, you know, mashes, uh, horses that are sensitive or not having a great time, um, that are tired or metabolically may need massages or rubs or ointment applied, or they may need cold hosing. You know, make sure that you meet with your rider and talk with them beforehand that they have a plan. Um, I like to have a written plan, like a Google Doc that's a crew plan with everybody's emergency information. Um, two super extra points for crew members that have been huge for me, other than carrying your magic backpack and making sure you're fit are, uh, have a virtual crew member who is at home. They can be anywhere in the world, but make sure they have a high speed internet connection because if your rider has a GPS tracker, that thing can be so problematic to track on your mobile phones because no matter what carrier you have, none of the crew is going to have service reliably all the way through Tevis, but your virtual crew member will. And so what you can do is your virtual crew member is in charge of tracking your rider's GPS on the ride tracker and sending text updates to the relevant crew and crew chief. So you really think of them as, a, as an integral member of the crew. Um, and the year we had that happen, it was my friend Jen Joins, and she did that for my mentor Jody. It was great because we knew she would say like, oh, her, tra- you know, her tracker's lagging. It's been lagging for this long of time. Oh, it just jumped ahead to this point. And it looks like by calculating the mileage and her last you know, speed or her relative rate of speed, she's about 30 minutes outside Forest Hill. And we're like, we were like, sweet. So we were set up and waiting exactly you know, 15 minutes before a rider came in thanks to our virtual crew member. So I can't, I can't emphasize how important that is enough. Hi, this is Dante Lapierre and oh, my Tevis experience 2019 was amazing. My rider number was 131 and I had a junior rider that rode one of my other horses, number 88. And it was my first year of doing the Tevis. And you know, you you've, you always hear these stories about, yeah, it's the most difficult 100 miler in the world and but nothing really can prepare yourself for what actually is going to happen or how you're going to experience it and I experienced it as wow this truly is the most difficult 100 miler in the world and for sure the most difficult 100 miler 
that I have ever competed in. And I have competed all over the world in 100 milers. And I tell you something, this was something else. So just a little bit on what happened was I got pulled at 85 miles. I think it's Francisco. I'm not sure. At about 11 o'clock at night, I got pulled there because my horse had a sore back. So it wasn't an actual one hour hold, but it was just like a you come in and you can give your horse food and stuff. And then once your pulse is 64, you can present to the vet. And then they take your pulse and then you trot out. Everything went fine until I went to trot out. And when I got back, they said to me, well, they see a little something, but they're not sure exactly what it is. And of course, you know, my legs and everything was really tired at that point because of the canyons that you had to go through. So they said, can I please maybe trot again? And I trotted again. And they said, yeah, it's not a consistent off, but something, you know, there's something. And then they had a look at my card and they said that they did make a note here that her, her back was a little bit sore at at um, the Forest Hill. But nothing at Forest Hill, you know, we massaged her back and everything was fine. I changed saddle pads. And so the vet said to me, okay, I, I can get like 10 minutes and maybe pull the saddle and, you know, massage a bit and see how it goes. But once I pulled that saddle and it was already starting, it, it was cold and it, it was getting dark. Once I pulled the saddle and I think the cold air hit her back, she just went completely stiff in her back. So when I went to trot her out, she was a little bit off. So I, I got pulled, which was actually a pity because 85 miles is, if you look at the map of Tavis, it's pretty much you've done all the hard work. It's just that little stretch home, which the the week before we did ride every day to Nohans Bridge. Uh, I, I think it's about six miles every day we were training. So it would have been so close and I didn't make it. And unfortunately for my young rider, she got pulled at also in the beginning of the ride because we were thinking that a rock got under her pad. But let, let me tell you more about the experience. Okay, so... You know, like a lot of people go different times there. We decided we wanted to go at least a week before the time to settle in and get all our stuff done. Um, I had blood drawn to see how my horse's blood were, were when we got there and everything looked good. We kept on training, you know, the last six miles every day. And then on Friday morning, we went up to Robbie Park, which was like, wow. I mean, it, everything was just amazing. Um got our camping spot and we vetted the horses in everything went good now the morning of the race was also quite hectic because we were in pen one and as we were warming up in pen one i decided that we want to pull away at the back of pen one and from where the pen one and pen two are you walk in the dark on your horse about a mile to where you, you start. And when they said trail is open, it was like those horses went ballistic. It went so fast and it was dark and the dust is everywhere. And you go onto this track, but you can't see anything. And it's like, if you're not going to keep your pace, everybody's going to go past you. And I was like, oh man, I just got to go. And I shouted to my junior and I was, are you here? And she's like, yeah. And we just kept on going, kept on going. And I, it felt so out of control because 
you can't see, luckily I had a white horse in front of me, so I could kind of see the white, or else I don't know what she stepped over, what she did, and we just went, went, went. And I was the whole time thinking, oh God, okay, please let daybreak just, you know, come. And then I can see where we're going. And then from there, we started going. Um, and all I can say was, firstly, it's very, very rocky. And you pretty much have to keep, it's pretty much a, a trotting hundred miler. And it's all pretty much always going downhill, except for the canyons. Oh, the canyons. Yes. Now, that was something else. It's as tough and hot as everybody said, even though this was a cooler year. It is very tough going down there. Uh, we got off our horses and we pretty much tried to just tag along, tag along. But it takes forever to get down there. And at the bottom of the first canyon, there's this nice river, blue kind of water stream. Oh, and it was just so nice to get to water. I even went all the way into the water, cooled my whole body off. And then from there, you go over the swing bridge and then you go up. And believe you me, it's up and up and up. <laughs> um, the canyons was pretty hard. But for me, I think what is for me that comes from North Dakota, I have to definitely step up my game a little bit with the, the trotting downhill because I really don't exercise my horses trotting downhill. And I didn't know what was waiting for me. So firstly, I just want to say for the record, this Tavis is like a drug. The morning when I woke up after I, the Sunday morning when I woke up, the first thing I told my mom was, I am never ever in my life going to do this again. And I promise you, it was like not even two hours later. And I said to myself, Dante, you're going to come back and you're going to come and finish this. So I'll definitely be back next year. I'm definitely going to step up my game regarding trotting downhill. It's pretty much downhill, a lot rocky. You pretty much have to go, 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 go all the time. I just want to say that the volunteers at this ride is amazing. Seriously, they offer you food to help you with your horse. There is food they are amazing. I've never been to a ride with so much help. So just a big thank you to them. But um, besides that, I'll be back next year. Both horses look look fine the next day. And, you know, they're on rest and everything looks good. It's a hard ride. So many wonderful people. Um, I've learned a lot. I have learned so much that I'm now prepared. Because, you know, if you look at the map, or not the map, map the group, crew points of where you go through everything, all the words like Francisco and Red Hawk and all this didn't make sense to me. Oh yeah, now I know where everything is. So I'll be prepared. Um, I did not go over Cougar Rock because I decided to put my normal steel shoes on my horses with pads. And when I got to Cougar Rock, it was really not as bad as everybody made it out to be. I would, would have gone over Cougar Rock. I probably would go next year. I think next year I'm going to change to booties, the rubber booties or something, and not do the steel shoes. And I would go over Cougar Rock because now that I've seen everybody's cool pictures, I was like, damn it, at least I could have had a picture. But um, yeah, it it is a tough ride. Um, for me, what killed me was that constant trotting downhill. My toes were numb my the bottom sole of my feet was just dead and i 
just said to myself, keep on going, keep on going, because this is a ride where if you're not going to keep on going, keep on going and play it safe at the back, there's always the the chance that you can get pulled because that's your overtime. So I was like, I'm not going to get pulled for overtime. Um, so I just kept on going, kept on going. Otherwise, you know, once after, say, the first 30 miles, people definitely start spreading out more. So uh, I was lucky enough to meet up with one of my friends, also from North Dakota, Angie, and we rode together in the dark. And even though it's not a ride where you can ride next to each other, it's pretty much behind each other. It was still cool to know that she was there for me and I was there for her. Even after we left the second one-hour vet check at Forest Hill, after that it got dark on us. It was nice to know that somebody was there and we just kind of tagged along, tagged along. Um, it was an, it, it, I'm so glad uh, that she at least finished the ride and, yeah, congratulations to everybody that finished the ride. And I just also want to say, I take my hat off for these people that all finished the ride and who attempt this ride because it was a hard one. It was amazing. I'll be definitely be back next year. Thank you. Hello, this is Angie Mickelson again, ready to share my part two story of my 2019 Tevis adventure. This part will be mostly about the days leading up to the ride. So after arriving at Roby Park, um, we went ahead and unloaded the horses and got everyone saddle, settled, not saddled. Um, <laughs> the first task we needed to complete was to get our Renegade boots glued on. Hannah and I have glued boots together for quite a few years and have a pretty good routine going as long as I give her the right size boot. Um, yep, one time I handed her uh, one that was supposed to be an aught and we glued it on, so that was a bad gluing, gluing moment in my, in my history of gluing. Anyways, we got our table set up and everything out ready to start gluing. Um, the process went well. Heat was not in our favor. It was definitely playing to our disadvantage. It makes the glue set up super fast and it gets a little stressful. Actually, the whole gluing process is always stressful because it's just so meticulous and you, you don't have much room for error. In about an hour and 20 minutes we had eight boots on and we were good to go. So we started organizing some more stuff around the trailer and made the horses a good wet sloppy mash. We It was getting later in the day so we went ahead and, and sat down for supper with Hannah's parents and friends Aaron and Josh who had arrived from Oregon to crew. We also had Roberta Gregor Nemo and Sarah Carlson coming in the morning on Friday um, for our, to complete our crew team. This would be Hannah's parents sixth Tevis so they were definitely our crew chiefs. They are very experienced and had a lot of information and, and details already planned out so that was nice the sun had started to go down after supper and the temps were getting cooler so we decided to saddle up and go for a little ride the horses were feeling really good like really good we rode out the start area where we'd start the ride and we're out for probably a half hour 45 minutes so that was the end of our our thursday um the next morning was friday wow like i just kept thinking how did that happen got there so fast. It's kind of a busy day with check-in, crew meetings, ride meetings, vet-in, obviously, and really the last day, obviously, to get ourselves together. 
which is sometimes a task in itself. Uh, we both had decided that we wanted to put a pommel pack on our saddles to have more stuff. Uh, when you carry an extra boot, it kind of hogs up most of your pack. So we went ahead and went down to check in and to shop a little bit. We got our ride packets and we both found pommel packs and headed back to the trailer to get the horses for the vet in. Wow, this was really happening is all I kept thinking. The whole thing was surreal. We went up to vet in and everything went well. Archie was good, pretty decent citizen. We went on back to the trailer, and as we went up and back, and, and even on our ride the night before, there's probably five, six water tanks, and so we went ahead and stopped at all of them just to give them an opportunity to drink something different, drink at a different tank. As much as we could get them to drink, the better, right? Crew went ahead and went up to the crew meeting, and Hannah and I started getting our, our packs stuffed full of all the things we, we thought we might need electrolytes, horse, human, eye pack, gel packs. Um, I also like the honey stinger waffles because they don't require a lot of chewing. So we just got everything packed, extra boots, did all that stuff while they were at the crew meeting. The plan was for Roberta and Sarah to go to Auburn and stay in a motel so they wouldn't have to deal with Roby Park traffic in the morning. It can be quite hectic. Um, Hannah's parents arrived with their camper so they went down they were planning to go to Forest Hill and stay the night and then they'd just go ahead and unhook and leave the camper there all day on Saturday until we got through the vet check on on Saturday through Forest Hill and then head into Auburn. Roberta and Sarah planned to hook up with Hannah's parents in the morning and go to Roby Park to meet us together. Aaron and Josh were our drivers. Aaron um was driving the car down, but that they'd arrive, that they'd come in, but Josh was um, gonna go ahead and drive the rig down the mountain. He's a log truck driver, so we couldn't have asked for a better person to take it down. The road going in out is kind of hectic for a bigger rig, and then you have to go down a big pass to get into Auburn, and and town's tight, and just it's just nice to have someone experienced that you can trust to take take everything down safely. We went on to the ride meeting later in the day. I think it was at about 6.30 that evening. We were sitting along the log and just hanging out and Josh said that there was um, bees flying around. And so we got up to move and as I did, one got me in the inside of my right knee. I was like, really? Uh, that's gonna be great for riding all day tomorrow. I'm not allergic, so... I just sucked it up and, and moved on. We put some hydrocortisone cream on it and life was good. It, it didn't actually turn out to be much of a problem. It bothered me more on Sunday than it did on Saturday, probably because I had more on my mind on Saturday. <laughs> the ride meeting was pretty typical, but we did have one major change or what I felt was a major change. Um, they told us that they'd eliminated the Pucker Point Trail, which is a pretty ledgy, challenging, iconic part of the Tevis Trail, but I guess it wasn't in very good condition and a herd of cattle had taken up residence in the area. So these cows, I guess, wear bells, which I guess they use to call them in somehow. I'm not really sure how it all works, but the last thing I wanted to do was meet up with a cow or a herd of cows wearing bells <laughs> around their neck coming at me on the Pucker Point Trail with thousands of foot drop off on one side. And Archie, who I know dumped Hannah twice last year at Medicine Lodge because he didn't like cows. So I guess I guess it was, it was a better decision. Maybe next time we'll get to tackle Pucker Point. So with a 3.30 wake up time, five o'clock, 
check-in for the start and a 5.15 start time, we set off back to the rig to try to wind down and we were in bed by 9.30. I slept pretty well for being the night of Tevis, of course. 3.30 in the morning came quite quickly, but I was very excited to go ahead and get started. So that concludes part two of my Tevis adventure. If you would like to listen to the conclusion, uh, that would be coming up next in part three. Thank you. Hey everybody, it's Chris again. I just came in from doing night chores with the family. It's raining here in Wisconsin and it's sticking around in the mid 50 degree range. It's getting dark so much sooner. Um, and I just want to apologize for not getting these episodes out right away. I was waiting for two promised files that still haven't came yet. And I thought, well, I better just get this together and get it out there for you all. And I was looking at the files and I thought, wow, do I make one really long episode because Tevis is a really long ride or do I break it into two and try to keep it around an hour, 10 hour, 20 minutes. So I decided to break it into two episodes. I wanted to say thank you to everybody who took the time to send in. I think that the crewing files are super important and the crew is super important. I don't see how you could get through this 100 mile ride without all the help and support from your crews. You probably could maybe, but I would imagine it makes it a lot more enjoyable. So thank you crew for sending in. Thank you everybody who sent in. I know when I did a call out for audios, a couple people said, oh, but Chris, I didn't finish. That's okay, honey, only 54% people do. And most of us that are listening uh, will never even have the privilege of standing at that start line or even getting to the first checkpoint. So we all take our hats off to you and say bravo, good job. We love that pioneer spirit that you have and that you're sharing your story with us. Thank you so much. So without further ado, I'm going to go start part two of Tevis 2019. We enjoyed having you along for the ride. Endurance Horse Podcast is where you get to share your adventures of riding good horses through beautiful country. Many stresses in life are washed away by a good gallop, a steady trot, or by simply saddling up your favourite horse for an easy ride. Remember, every mile a memory. To share your story on Endurance Horse Podcast, send an email to endurancehorsepodcast at gmail.com.